You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On March 29, 1995, around 3.20 in the afternoon, Floyd Thomas and his buddy were scrounging around next to an irrigation canal known as Whiskey Slough. This was in the Delta area off Bacon Island Road outside Holt, California, in San Joaquin County. They were looking for bottles and cans to redeem for the recycling amounts and any other junk worth salvaging when they noted an abandoned refrigerator sitting in the mud, partially submerged in the shallow canal. The 14-cubic-foot Frigidaire was muddy, battered, and stained. Curious, the scrappers attached a tow rope to the roping that tied the fridge closed and hauled it up out of the slough. Then the roping around the fridge broke. Floyd pulled the door handle, and the fridge released its seal and opened. Crammed inside, upside down and nestled among blankets, a sleeping bag and mud, was a dead woman. Floyd and his buddy closed the fridge, packed up their bags of cans and bottles they'd picked up, and drove to the recycling station where they redeemed their treasure. They also threw away the roping that had been tied around the fridge. When Floyd got home that night, he told his mom that they'd found a fridge with a dead lady in it. Sensibly, Floyd's mom insisted that he call the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office and report what he'd seen. Deputies arrived at Whiskey Slough and secured the scene. Sure enough, just as Floyd had reported inside the fridge, they observed the decomposed remains of a white woman. She had a gag in her mouth, although her lower jaw had detached due to decomposition, and her hands were taped together behind her back with electrical tape. The woman's body was carefully removed for autopsy and the fridge contents inventoried and collected. A number of items were found in both the upper freezer compartment and the main refrigerator section where the body was. These were collected into evidence and then the filthy fridge was hauled away to be poured over by forensic techs. At autopsy, forensic pathologists Dr. Charles Cecil and Thomas O'Neill made several observations about the deceased woman, who had no identification on her or anywhere inside the fridge. As I said, she was Caucasian, about 5 foot 5 to 5 foot 8 inches tall, with a slight build at around 115 or 120 pounds. She had reddish blonde hair, and several aspects of her person indicated that she had taken care of herself. Her straight, white teeth exhibited few fillings. Her nicely manicured nails spoke to regular grooming. But she had a sock stuffed in her mouth, serving as a gag, and her mouth and eye region had residue, indicating they'd been covered with electrical tape. The tape pieces still clung to one side of her face and had likely become partially detached as her body broke down. As for cause of death, that was evident. 
Jane Doe had a fractured skull. The autopsy report cited a circular defect in the cribriform area of the skull and a final defect in the zone of the right lower temporal skull. In other words, Jane Doe had died from blunt force trauma to the head. Based on the size and nature of the crushing wound to her right front temporal lobe, the investigators concluded that she'd been hit with a heavy object. Because she was so decomposed, the pathologist was unable to make a determination about what type of weapon had been used to strike Jane Doe. The official cause of death listed in the coroner's report was homicidal violence of unknown etiology. The report concluded that she had likely died sometime between August 1994 and early 1995. Her age was hard to determine because the pathologist believed that, based on the level of decomposition, she'd likely been entombed in the frigid air for close to a year. Her age range was placed between 29 and 41. And then this quote from the Stockton Record, which had a great article on this case back in 2013. Forensic analysis determined she had probably been there since summer 1994, almost a year. Corpses sealed off from air turned to a sort of wax by a process called adiposere, turning to soap, some detectives call it. San Joaquin Assistant Sheriff John Huber, who was actually at the scene and worked the case for 18 years, said, quote, It almost looked like she was a mannequin. She was hard, like styrofoam, end quote. From this, I learned this new word, adiposere, a waxy substance produced by the decomposition of dead animal bodies underwater or in cold, damp burial places. Apparently, adiposere commences within a month of death. We don't have a toxicology report on Jane Doe. It's not clear whether one was done or was able to be done, given the condition of the remains. Jane Doe's clothing and jewelry were all removed and documented a blue sweatshirt, a Victoria's Secret 34B bra, a white Fruit of the Loom t-shirt, cuffed denim Levi's shorts size 30 to 32, size 8 Gorilla brand hiking shoes, multicolored striped knee-high socks with toes, and a one-third carat diamond solitaire ring worn on the ring finger of her right hand. This engagement-style ring, worn on the wrong hand and not accompanied by a wedding band, indicated that Jane Doe might have been separated or divorced. A broken leather thong-style necklace adorned her throat, and in her jean shorts pocket were two pendants with holes for weaving them onto the necklace. One of the pendants was smooth and amber-colored, and the other was a pointy sunray shape. Jane Doe wore no underwear. Her gorilla hiking boots were expensive, about $120, but since they were hardly unique, conveyed only that the victim had some financial assets during her life. The sock found stuffed into the doe's mouth was of indeterminate color, having been stained by decomposition fluids. Investigators couldn't even tell if it was a man's or woman's sock. Oddly, it appeared to have been a tube or knee sock that had been cut down to ankle sock size. Investigators went to great lengths to figure out who the woman in the fridge was. They had to start with the only things they had to work with, besides their unnamed victim, the other physical evidence found at the scene. Like all appliances, the gold-colored fridge had a serial number on it. Detectives traced it to a manufacturer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where it had been built in 1983. It was sold at a dealer somewhere in the greater Oakland area. No surprise, the appliance had been purchased in-state, but the fridge trail ended there. 1980s appliance purchase records were hardly the digitized ones we have today, 
and the purchaser had not returned the warranty card that might have led back to him. As for the fridge dump site in Whiskey Slough, Detective Christopher Sterney of the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office, who was working this case, told me that investigators believe the Frigidaire was dumped where it was found. The irrigation canal was not deep and the fridge would have planted itself in the mud, only partially submerged, rather than be washed downstream. Someone must have brought it in on a truck and dumped it, tying it shut first to ensure it didn't pop open. And it didn't. The inside of the fridge had some moisture in it. The pillow and pillowcase were wet and there was some mud, but it wasn't full of water. Investigators believe it sat in that spot, unnoticed in a rural, relatively unpopulated location, for about seven months before Floyd hauled it out and opened it. The investigators were able to glean a limited amount of information from certain items found in the freezer compartment. These were a Gokio brand reusable ice bag, a Rubbermaid ice bucket, a Wendy's ketchup container, a Kentucky Fried Chicken honey container and some KFC butter packets, five Crystal brand school lunch-sized milk cartons, and a long melted bag of ice. Detectives narrowed down the region where the cartons of milk were distributed. The crystal milk was packaged in Sacramento and distributed to institutions in Northern California, such as schools, corporate cafeterias, and jails. It was a pretty wide swath of destinations, and they weren't able to narrow the milk's origins down further. However, the Glacier brand party ice bag had a manufacturer date of August 1994 that helped investigators in two ways. The August 94 manufacture date helped define the window of time in which Jane Doe was believed to have been killed. Assuming the ice was in the freezer when she was placed in the frigid air, it had to be during or later than August 1994. The date on the ice also allowed Detective Huber, the lead investigator on the case for many years, to trace the lot of bags distributed to retailers, bait shops, and marinas in the Contra Costa County area. Again, a pretty wide region. They had more luck with the National Industrials brand electrical tape used to gag and bind Jane Doe. It was purchased in the same general area at a military surplus store in Oakley. The ice, milk, and tape origins all intersected in the East Bay Delta area, still a needle in a haystack. Other items were even less helpful. A white blanket and a blue blanket found nestled with Jane Doe's body were not labeled or unique. A J.C. Penny pillow and case were widely sold and undistinguished. Same with a blue bath towel, a white sheet, and a multicolored cannon comforter. A sleeping bag was Hillary brand, sold widely at retailers. But then two very odd things were found. Twenty-four strips of a rust black tan fake fur fabric were in the freezer. These strips were not cut from a larger piece. They were uniform in size, about 18 to 24 inches in length and five to six inches wide. Investigators have been unable to figure out what the purpose of these fur strips were and why the heck they were in the Frigidaire's freezer. The second odd find was two royal blue Velcro-backed pads that looked like they might have been some kind of inserts into a helmet. They resemble small Christmas stockings or oven mitts. A piece of thick raw string was attached to one of them, Detectives haven't been able to make heads or tails of any of these pieces. They think maybe they were earpieces to some helmet. I'll post a picture of these in hopes that someone might have some idea about what they could be. 
It's estimated that at any given time, there are 90,000 missing persons, and that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything you wouldn't do to try to find them? Our podcast shines a light on just some of these cases. I'm Jess Betancourt. And I'm Mike Morford, and we're the host of the podcast, Missing Persons. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about someone who disappeared and currently remains missing, and we'll discuss efforts to find out what happened to them. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to chase down. In others, though, it's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. In each episode, you'll hear from someone who's desperately searching for that missing person. And whether they've been searching for 30 days or 30 years, the struggle to find out what happened is real. There are dozens of episodes to binge on right now, and new episodes drop every other Saturday. Will you join us and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons wherever you listen to podcasts. Jane Doe's dental records were entered into the California Department of Justice database with no match. Eventually, CODIS was no help either. No family members of the unidentified woman ever submitted DNA to the unidentified human remains database. The lady in the fridge was entered into the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System, or NamUs as UP-68494, but nothing came of that either. Eventually, the San Joaquin County authorities decided to give Jane Doe a proper burial and interred her in a local cemetery. They retained her skull to use in possible forensic reconstructions of her features and as a source of DNA. As reported by the Stockton Record, now-retired Detective Huber said, quote, I was absolutely positive I was going to identify this girl in the first week or so, end quote. He was wrong, and over time, he became so invested in the case, he attributed personality traits to Jane Doe. I think she's somebody that somebody would miss, he said, kind of a hippie girl, somebody who would go to renaissance fairs or craft fairs and go hiking. Huber worked the lady in the fridge case for about 18 years. Over those nearly two decades, he compared the Jane Doe's characteristics to about 5,000 reports of missing women that came his way pursuant to teletypes to other agencies and queries of missing persons databases. Huber stopped into all the nail salons, hardware stores, and other retailers on Highway 4, just a few miles from where the fridge had been dumped. Nothing. He even asked local dentists about patients who had stopped coming in for cleanings, and he tried to track down the engagement ring. He arranged for media coverage for the case. It all went nowhere. Huber retired in 2013, frustrated beyond measure that he hadn't been able to name the lady in the fridge, believing that if he did so, her murder would likely be solved. The investigators on the lady in the fridge case eventually ran out of investigative avenues and the case stagnated. But with the advent of forensic genealogy, there came renewed hope that perhaps Jane Doe had relatives in the open-source DNA databases and she could be identified. But first, they needed her DNA profile in SNP form. In 2022, San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office investigators sent the skull from the lady in the fridge to Othram Labs to work up a SNP profile suitable for forensic genealogy. There, in-house forensic scientists were able to utilize the degraded DNA to develop a SNP profile for Jane Doe. They then commenced the forensic genealogy. The Othram genealogist located a relative of Jane Doe in one of the open source databases who shared 327 centimorgans of DNA with Jane Doe. This wasn't an incredibly close DNA relative, but was close enough that they likely shared third great-grandparents. 
Othram finally sent the results of its analysis, an investigative lead, to San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office investigators. They concluded that the lady in the fridge might be a woman who had not appeared on any public record since 1994. The investigators contacted this woman's suspected mother and daughter, and they acknowledged that there was a woman in their immediate family who had not been seen since the mid-90s. They agreed to submit DNA tests to Othram to help confirm the identification. The tests showed that the missing woman's mother, Doris Marie Brewer Ellsworth, shared 3,526 centimorgans with the lady in the fridge. This amount of shared DNA is indicative of a parent-child relationship. The lady in the fridge was Amanda Lynn Schumann Deza. San Joaquin County authorities held a press conference on February 24, 2023, announcing the identification of the lady in the fridge. Sheriff Pat Winthrow talked about his department's nearly three-decade-long effort to identify her. He said, quote, It is with a tempered heart that I get to announce that we have identified a young woman murdered in our county. I'd just like to take this time right now to give her her name back, to give her her story back. We've identified her through modern technology. Her name is Amanda. Amanda Lynn Schumann Deza, end quote. Okay, I'm breaking from the press conference here to relay what we know about Amanda. Amanda Lynn Schumann was born August 11, 1965, in Alameda, California. Her father was Roger Terrence Schumann, who lived from 1938 to 1994, and her mother is Doris Marie Brewer Ellsworth. They were married in 1962 and divorced in 1974. Amanda has an older half-sister, Initial B, who was 10 years Amanda's senior. We know next to nothing about Amanda's early life other than that she grew up in the Napa area. On May 24, 1985, at age 19, she was married in Los Angeles to a man who was at least eight years her senior. The sunny blonde went on to have three children with her husband, Juan Deza. There are several photos that have been released of Amanda with her children, smiling as they gaze at the camera. In some photos, she's in the pool with a baby. It all looks very idyllic. But at some point, things started to go awry for Amanda. Very little is known about what happened to the family or her marriage. Amanda became involved in drugs and sometimes left her family and went to Fresno. Her older sister, B, who was away a lot of the time in connection with her military career, sometimes hauled Amanda back up north to try to pull her out of the downward spiral she was on. Amanda had separated from her husband, Juan, and at some point, her children were removed from the home by Child Protective Services. Amanda made attempts to get them back, but was unsuccessful, and she eventually lost contact with her children. She became somewhat itinerant, and in the years before her death, lived in the Napa, Oakley, and Delta areas. She also spent some time in a rehab facility in Napa. No one reported Amanda missing. Her family made some initial attempts to locate her, and at times had a general idea where she was and who she was with, but then they completely lost touch with her. And of course, we know that after August 1994, she was in touch with no one. An aunt of Amanda's told Detective Sterney that she knew something was wrong, but no one called the police because they very much doubted the police would do anything. The Guardian scored an interview with Amanda's daughter who was instrumental in identifying her. I'm quoting at length from the article here, although I've changed their references to Deza to read Amanda. The breakthrough in the case was made with help from her daughter, Veronica Tovar, 
who contributed a DNA sample to confirm that the remains were those of her mother. Tovar, who was removed from her mother's home at the age of three, has only a handful of memories of Amanda. She spent years wondering what happened to her mother, who she remembers as being sweet and loving. I've lived my whole life just not knowing, the 34-year-old said. She was gone and I just never knew why. I thought she just left us. I felt left. Tovar doesn't know why she and her other siblings were removed from her mother's care. She does know that Amanda wanted her children to stay together, and the three were eventually placed in the same adoptive home. She loved her kids even though she wasn't here with us. That feeling never left me. She did the best she could with what she had, Tovar said. For me, for what I feel and the memories I have, it's almost like she just got lost. I think she didn't have the support she needed to thrive. Veronica always wanted to know what happened to her mother. When a detective from the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office called her out of the blue and asked her if she might help identify her mother, she was thrilled to contribute a DNA sample. She said she scraped her cheeks using the test stick from the kit Othram sent her so hard her mouth was sore the next day. As she waited to hear back from the police, she poured over details of the case and the reality of what her mother endured began to sink in. This is again from The Guardian. I sat on pins and needles until I found out. I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop reading about her case, she said. It's so unfair, so unjust, the brutality of how she was murdered. I had the same questions everyone else had. Why wasn't anyone looking for her? Somebody had to know her. How did nobody notice she was missing? It doesn't make sense. It really shook me. The breakthrough has provided some long-awaited answers to Tovar, but questions remain about Amanda's life, exactly what happened to her, and the identity of her killer. Amanda had a small family, her mother and sister, and they never offered information about her, Tovar recalls. They missed her, but no one ever said, where is she? What happened? There was never any conversation. There is much Tovar doesn't know, but she does have a handful of memories with her mother, a day in a sandbox making art. I remember her playing with me in the sand one time. I remember her loving me. I can feel that. She did love me, she said. She was sweet. But she also remembers being able to sense her mother's struggles. Before I was taken, I do remember feeling sadness from her, Tovar said. I remember my mom was really sad. Tovar is the only one of Amanda's children involved with the case. Her brother and sister are not up to taking part, she said. They were removed from her mother's home before her, and none of them know why. We still just don't know. On top of the not knowing, we didn't know what happened. We didn't know why she never contacted us. Again, all that from The Guardian. Okay, back to the press conference. Sheriff Winthrow handed things over to Lieutenant Linda Jimenez, Lieutenant of Investigations overseeing the Persons Unit, Child Abuse and Sexual Assault Unit, Property Unit, Cold Case Unit, and Technical Services Unit. She is a busy woman. Lieutenant Jimenez stated that although they had identified Amanda, that was just the first step in their investigation. She said, quote, It's kind of hard to investigate who killed someone if you don't know who they are, she said. It gives us a place to start. Once you've identified them, you can dive into their lives and get all the details of what was going on in their life during that time frame. That usually leads us to who was responsible for taking their life, end quote. However, it's not clear whether that's the case in Amanda's situation. She was estranged from her family, and it's not really known whom she was in contact with. As we heard in the Guardian story, Amanda was separated from her husband and three young children at the time of her disappearance. She lived for a time with a boyfriend whom she had met in rehab, 
but he relapsed and died of a drug overdose in 1993 or 94. After that, Amanda's trail goes cold. Lieutenant Jimenez emphasized that Amanda's case is an unsolved violent homicide, and the department needs the public's help in resolving the case. We are looking for any clues to her disappearance. We're missing several pieces to the years prior to her death. Our work is far from over, she said. Lieutenant Jimenez also announced that Stockton Crime Stoppers is offering a reward of up to $10,000 for information leading to the arrest of Amanda's killer. Then District Attorney Ron Freitas spoke. He said, quote, This case is far from being closed, and justice is far from being served. I look forward to prosecuting to the fullest extent of the law the coward that committed this heinous act. And only then, when I'm able to prosecute to the fullest extent of the law, can true justice and true closure be given to her family. Freitas and the other authorities declined to comment on whether there's a person of interest in Amanda's case. And I know exactly what you're thinking because I was thinking it too. What about Amanda's husband, Juan Deza? Where was he when Amanda went missing? Would the couple's struggles, Amanda's drug issues, and her attempts to get her children back from CPS, isn't it logical to suspect that Juan Deza might have had something to do with her demise? Well, Detective Sterney tells me that this is unlikely. Juan Deza failed to show up for a 1991 CPS hearing in which Amanda was trying to get her kids back from the state. And he didn't just not show up, he disappeared. Amanda filed a missing persons report on him with Ventura authorities when he never showed up again. Investigators have never been able to locate him and believe that it is likely he went back to Peru in 1991, possibly to avoid responsibility for his three children. So Juan, officially missing since 91, is actually way down the list of persons who possibly killed Amanda in late summer of 1994. As for the kids, Amanda never did get them back. Detective Sterney told me a touching story about Amanda's struggles. One day, she was on a motorcycle with a man and they were stopped at an intersection outside a diner, arguing, and he began assaulting her. Amanda managed to jump off the bike and run over to a woman who came out of the diner and yelled to intervene. Amanda and this woman ended up talking. Amanda was in tears. And she explained that she was upset because CPS had removed her children and split them up. Well, it just so happened that this Good Samaritan woman was a foster mom already in the system. She contacted CPS and requested that Amanda's kids be assigned to her. They were and she ended up adopting all three of them. This foster mom told modern-day investigators that Amanda came to prearranged, supervised visitation meetings at parks and playgrounds for a time, and then she stopped coming. CPS does not have records from the early 90s any longer, so detectives cannot reconstruct the timeline of Amanda's struggle to keep her kids. It's one of the pitfalls of these Doe homicide cases, that while the victims remain unidentified, time passes witnesses die, records are purged, and evidence deteriorates. And indeed, the vast majority of investigative work in this case went into trying to identify the lady in the fridge. Without knowing who she was and without being able to understand the victimology, theories as to who killed her were difficult to formulate. However, the circumstances of the murder of Jane Doe, who we now know to be Amanda Deza, that she was bound and her eyes and mouth taped before she was bludgeoned, point to the probability that she was abducted and held captive by a seasoned killer. Some serial killers who are known to operate in the area at the time have not been ruled out. 
One was Terry Peter Rasmussen. This from Newsweek, quote, Assistant Sheriff John Huber has previously said he feared the lady in the fridge may have fallen victim to serial killer Rasmussen, who killed at least six people and died, age 67, in prison in California in 2010, end quote. Detective Sterney tells me that Rasmussen was in the Oakland area at the time of Amanda's murder. And if you listened to the Bear Brook podcast, you'll recall that he killed his female victims by blunt force trauma, put them in barrels, and dumped them in remote areas. Another possibility that's under consideration is the speed freak killers, who killed multiple victims using multiple MOs and dumped them in different areas around San Joaquin County. These were Lauren Herzog and Wesley Shermantine, meth heads who claimed to have killed as many as 70 victims for fun and games between 1984 and the late 90s. Their sordid story is worthy of its own podcast and is way too lengthy and complex for me to get into here. As a rule, I don't recommend Wikipedia, but the Speed Freak Killers page there is actually pretty good, and it includes 46 linked sources if you're interested in learning more about these two animals. Detective Sterney told me there is no concrete link between Amanda and any of these serial killers, but he confirmed that no one has been ruled out. That's unfortunate because the suspect pool is almost infinite, since we don't have specific knowledge of where Amanda was, what she was doing, and who she was hanging out with before she died. Given the trajectory of her life, it sounds probable that she was extremely vulnerable, rootless, itinerant, and fostering a drug habit. Her killer could be almost anyone. Whoever he was, he was someone capable of binding and gagging a woman and killing her with deliberate, forceful, and multiple blows to the head. The fact that she was placed in a refrigerator and then the whole thing discarded suggests to me that he was someone who had to hide his victim for a time before he had the opportunity to get rid of her. And when he did, he likely needed help moving that heavy appliance, hoisting it into a vehicle, and placing it in Whiskey Slough. In a new focus on identifying Amanda's killer, the California Department of Justice's crime lab has accepted five items of physical evidence in Amanda's case and is currently performing advanced DNA testing on those items. I don't know which items they are specifically using. Certain items were already tested for latent prints with no success, but I'm hopeful that offender DNA remains on whatever they're testing. Perhaps an STR profile can be obtained and a CODIS hit to some violent offender will solve this case. Or perhaps enough offender DNA can be harvested to generate a SNP profile, and forensic genealogy will resolve the second prong of this case after shedding light on the first. Lieutenant Jimenez wrapped up the press conference. I'm sad for her family, she said, but, quote, I'm very excited that we were able to give her a name. Amanda actually has a name. She actually has a face. Amanda is a daughter. She's a sister. She's a mother. She's a friend. And there's many of you out there who know and have information about her life, the activities she was involved with, the friendships that she had, as well as any intimate relationships. No matter what challenges she faced in life, she still has value and worth and her family deserves justice just like everyone else, end quote. Sheriff Winthrow added, quote, We're looking for a piece of information anyone can get us about her life. If they knew her, if they'd been a neighbor, a friend, if they'd gone to parties together, whatever it is. If you can reach out and say, yeah, I knew Amanda. I never knew what happened to her, but when I knew her, this is what she was like. These were her friends. Any information would be great, end quote. 
Anyone with information about Amanda Lynn Schumandeza or possible details surrounding her murder, please reach out to the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Office at 209-468-5087 or by email at coldcase at sjgov.org.